to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, we're talking about childhood abuse and how to heal from it. While traumatic events at any point in our lives will have an impact on us, being the victim of childhood abuse can affect almost every aspect of your life, even decades later. According to the Children's Advocacy Center, one out of three girls and one out of five boys will be sexually abused before they reach age 18. 90% of those children who are abused actually know the perpetrator. Abused and neglected kids are 11 times more likely to engage in criminal behavior as an adult. And 80% of 21-year-olds who were abused as children meet the criteria for at least one psychological disorder. Despite those startling statistics, it's a topic that most people don't want to discuss. As a therapist, I see lots of people who struggle to talk about the fact that they were abused as kids. Some people are still protective of family members who abuse them. Others are concerned that nobody's going to believe them. And many people just don't want to stir up the things that they've worked really hard to avoid for so many years. While all of those things can be valid concerns, our guest today shares how talking about his history of abuse actually set him free. Today, I'm talking to former NFL player Reggie Walker. Reggie was sexually, physically, and emotionally abused as a child. And he kept that a secret for most of his life. In fact, he says in some ways, football saved him because it gave him a socially acceptable way to act out his anger. But he also engaged in some self-destructive behaviors, like smoking and drinking. He eventually went to therapy. But he said that a a one-hour-a-week appointment with a therapist wasn't enough. So he checked himself into a residential treatment center so he could get more intensive treatment. After six years in the NFL, where he played for the Cardinals, the Chargers, and the Broncos, he decided to step away from football. He pursued his master's degree in counseling, and now his mission is to help other athletes who are survivors of abuse. Some of the things he talks about today are how he found the courage to talk about what happened to him, how he realized that so many other people could relate to what he'd been through, and the steps he's taking today to keep managing his mental health. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on the strategies Reggie shares and explain how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Reggie Walker on how healing from childhood trauma will help you grow mentally stronger. Reggie Walker, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Amy. It's a a pleasure. Absolutely. I am always excited when I know that somebody who is in the limelight, talks about mental health and shares their own story. But I'm especially interested when I hear from an athlete because I think so many people hold athletes up on this pedestal and think, obviously, they have everything all together. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it this far. You have to have a certain level of self-discipline and you have to uh, do certain things in order to make it at the elite level. You have to definitely have a, a lot of mental strength to get there. But then when you come out and you share your story of, well, yeah, I struggled too, I think it gives the rest of us a little more insight into the fact that you can be both successful and hurting all at the same time. Yeah, it was a, it was a really uh, 
odd place to be in. Um, especially when I, when I when it really hit me that I got everything that I wanted out of out of football and the situation in itself, that I had everything. I was my most miserable that I've ever been, and all at the same time. I had everything, but I also was the most miserable I've ever been because when it came down to just myself and um, what really made me happy, I wasn't living that life and I wasn't doing things how I wanted to. I was doing a lot of things for the wrong reason and it started to really uh, take away from me after after some time. And can you explain that to us, what kinds of things were going on? Because again, in the limelight from the outside looking in, you look like you were probably this happy guy, finally living your dream, amazing opportunities that you had that came your way. But what was going on on the inside for you? Well, I I grew up, um, I, I suffered through mental, physical, and sexual abuse. And that was basically like, my whole goal was going to the NFL to be happy. If I get to this point, everything that I had suffered through, went through up to this point would make it all worth it. Um, going through all that pain and trauma, it would make it worth it. But then when I got to that point and I was, the only thing that was different was now I'm just a guy who's gone through a bunch of abuse and I just got a bunch of money now. Like nothing really changed. And it, and in, in a lot of ways, it really, it started breaking me down. Cause then at that point, it took me a while to realize how that I, I thought I was never going to actually be happy. Um, it w- it really hit me like a ton of bricks. Like if I got to this point, I'm not happy, then nothing's going to make me happy. So then it kind of sent me into like a real major depression. And I think a lot of people have that false belief that once I achieve X, Y, and Z, my life will be okay. And, but most people obviously don't ever make it into the NFL, but they just think if I, once I get out of college, once I get a real job, once I move up the ladder a little bit, that that's sort of the goal line. And when I get there, I'll feel so much better. And even though I went through these hard things, it won't matter as much. But you had this to an extreme level of, I mean, being in the NFL is going to be the dream for so many people. Most people don't make it. You made it. And then to think, yeah, but I'm still not happy. What was that like for you? It was an odd place to be at because on the outside, everyone's uh, telling you, you know, you're amazing, you're this, you're that, you're all these great things. And then on the inside, you're just like, I, I'm really like needing some help right now because I don't know how on earth I'm going to actually find happiness for once. And, um, trying to figure out that while, you know, I, you know, I'm a parent, I have three kids, you know, I have a wife and, you know, I have teammates who is also a middle linebacker and, you know, you're the one who basically is like the quarterback of the defense. So you got to, you got to make sure that your stuff is together each and every day to make sure that they will actually follow you in the huddle. And it was like a constant balancing act. I remember I would, I would be three people when I came home, I would either be happy, go lucky. I loved everything. Uh, Second guy was like, I hate everything. I can't even believe I'm doing this. I I wasted so much of my life doing this or I would just be completely silent. And you know, some days I would just go home and just cry my face off by myself. I didn't want it to show to like my family or anybody that I was really broken inside. And I was trying to figure out how to like put myself together. And it was eventually it just kind of got to a point where I realized I really need to step away from this. And I need to go, if football is not the thing that's going to make me happy, like what will, like, how can I go and do that? And that's when, you know, I started doing therapy 
more extensively. And then that's when I actually decided to go to a treatment center because it, it was absolutely necessary at that time. Did you know that the reason you were struggling so much was because you hadn't healed these childhood wounds? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. it, it definitely, it definitely after, I would say my second year, I started, I talked about it a little bit to um, a girlfriend when I was a junior in college. And then I, you know, I'm good. Like I talked about it. I'm good. I'm healthy. Like, you know, what a lot of people do. Then as I started playing in the league, it started coming out in other ways. Um, I was drinking a lot. I was smoking a lot. Um, I would really engage in a lot of, uh, like, uh, what's the word? Um, really, really dangerous activities. It was like, I had to, it was like trying to get this stuff out and I didn't know how to verbalize it. It wasn't until I really just, you know, Hey, I need to retire from this. And I stepped away and then I put my healing first. And that's when I did the treatment center stays. Yeah, and I appreciate that you talked about going to a treatment center. I believe you said at some point you tried outpatient therapy and it wasn't enough for you. Yeah, I, the therapy wasn't enough. It just wasn't. For, you know, I was 27 at the time. I hadn't dealt with any of this stuff internally at like well at all. And I haven't talked about it. So I had to go do the 30 days. Like I had to go, I had to go away from my family. I had to miss my daughter's birthday. I didn't, I had to, because I was so suicidal at that point that there, there, I, I really thought at that point of time, there's nothing that was going to make me happy at that point. So it was a scary place to be in. I can imagine. And I'm glad that you talk about that because so many people will say, well, I, I go to therapy once a week or I went to eight therapy sessions. Or, and then if it's, they don't feel like they're getting better, then they think, well, I'm just too damaged to possibly get better. There's no hope for me. Therapy doesn't work for me. And, and they don't dare try anything else. How did you know, rather than just quit and say, okay, this isn't work, there's no hope for me, how did you know that a better plan was to say, no, I'm going to do something even more intensive as opposed to just walk away? Well, I had um, I had a buddy named Hamza Abdullah. He actually had done um, um, a stay there before because they were helping guys get their benefits through the NFL. Like you, you could go to see doctors there. And he just told me about his experience. He said it was really great. Um, I know that when you get done playing, you really need to go through this like debriefing period where you get, where you need to get acclimated into regular life. He was just like, just go check it out. I'll hop on a plane with you. Cause he knew I was doing really, really bad. Um, and he was just like, if I got to hop on a plane with you, I'll, I'll take you down there. Like, you know, I need you here. We're brothers. Like we need, I need you here. And, um, I was like, dude, I don't want to go somewhere for 30 days. Like, I, I can handle this. Like, I'm strong. I'm a tough dude. Like, you know me. I, I don't need to do something like this. And he was just like, yeah, you do. Like, and you know it. And he was like, you know, you're doing well. No, you do. Because you know you've never had to face this this obstacle, like an obstacle like this before, which is really yourself. You've never dealt with yourself. And this place, they'll, go, they'll help you to do that. And they'll give you lots of love and care. And you'll be in a great spot. They got great meals. You'll be around other people looking for help, trying to do the same thing you're doing. And he was like, yeah, because the only way it's through it is really to sit sit in it. And um, yeah, that like saved my life. And that had to have taken a lot of the stigma out of it to have somebody that you knew and trusted who said, yeah, this is helpful. Because for a lot of people, I think it's just like, no, like, you know, people who are really broken or you'd have to be um, 
really, really struggling to go to a place like that. It's not for people like me, or I wouldn't want anybody to know. It's easy to hide therapy when you go for an hour a week, but if you're going to be gone somewhere for 30 days, you probably going to have to come out and tell some people where you are, right? Yeah. And the thing is too, I, at first when I went, I, I had the same thoughts of, you know, everybody, you know, that would probably go like, oh man, I'm going to a crazy house. Like I'm a crazy person now. Like, and you're like, no, especially once you go and do it, you're like, man, this is actually a really good tool to have is being able to go and sit because it's, it's so much therapy. It's so much therapy and you're doing groups and you're doing individuals, but you're there with a whole army of people that are there to help you just get better. And it, I, I felt like I would go again. I would, I would still continue to go. It's a huge resource. And, um, and the crazy part too, well, I wouldn't say the crazy part, but after going and doing the 30 days twice, it really hit me that a lot of people really need to do this. If they have the opportunity to go and sit with yourself for 30 days and get out all of your crap in, in, in a group of other individuals doing the same thing, it could be probably the most life-changing experience you'll ever have in your life. Yeah, so I was very thankful for that. I can imagine. And as a therapist, I see people, you know, it's like an hour a week usually for um, for treatment, but there's only so much you can cover in an hour a week. And they go back out into the real world and something happens, they come back the next week. Sometimes it's really hard to to really dig deep into old issues and childhood wounds. And people are like, I stir it up for an hour a week and then I go home. But to be able to do it for just 30 days straight, I would imagine on one hand, maybe that's scary too, to think, gosh, I have this box that I've kept closed and now I'm going to open it up for 30 days straight. Was that scary at all to think about that? Oh, it was beyond scary. It was beyond scary because you knew that there was something underneath, under underneath it all, that you had been avoiding like the plague for your whole life. You knew it was there. And when I still remember when I sat on the couch when I first got there and I did my intake, the lady, Mary, she looked at me and she was just like, you're scared out of your mind, aren't you? And I was just like, hell no. Like, look at me. I am not scared of anything. And she was just like, I'm looking at you and you are scared. And I was like, sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm petrified. Like, I'm absolutely petrified. And the whole process in itself too, yeah, it is scary. And yeah, it is painful too. It's very painful. One, knowing why you do what you do and the root of it and then trying to like dig some of this stuff out or it's it's a very painful process. It can be, but it's a very necessary process because afterwards, now I know that I'm actually myself now. I'm not trying, I'm not portraying, and I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not somebody else that I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to be like me. And I'm always me all the time. And I wouldn't have never got to that process if I didn't do the treatment center studies, for sure. So did you go 30 days and then get out for a while and then go back for another 30 days? Or did you do a couple stays back to back? I did 30 days and then went back two years later and then did another 30 days. The first time I basically had to get pushed on the plane. The second time I just went myself because it was just, even, even the 30 days, the first time I still felt like I didn't get it all out enough. So I decided to go back again to sit back in it again. And it, it was a great decision. Interesting, because I think a lot of people, once they open that box, they talk about it, then they think, well, I'm healed. And even if they don't necessarily feel it, they're afraid to then say, actually, I'm still struggling or I need to get more help for this. 
because we want so desperately to say whatever it is we did worked that we then don't want to admit, well, I'm still struggling a little bit over here. Yeah, it's it's a management type thing. It's that, you know, your physical health is, you know, your mental health is just as important as your physical health and it needs to be managed, you know, in a similarly. So that's something that I had to understand because the first time I went, I thought, okay, I did my 30 days. I'm healed. I'm good. Everything's good. Don't need therapy anymore. Don't need any of this. And then you just kind of, and then I didn't, I didn't manage myself enough. So then I went the second time. And then ever since then, I've managed myself and understand that like, okay, this is a, this is a constant thing. Like I got to do things that are going to actually help me be healthy. Got to have a morning routine. Got to eat healthy. Got to talk about my emotions and feelings and get this stuff out. Got to surround myself with better people. You know, it's, it's a constant thing that you have to do if you really want to maintain your, your mental health. Um, and I just, I just didn't know that. I just didn't get it the first time. I'm glad that you said that because I think our mental health system hasn't worked the same way as our physical health system does. You go to the doctor, maybe you get a checkup, you get medication or the doctor makes recommendations. But with the expectation that you'll eventually go back to the doctor, whether it's just for your next annual checkup or you'll go back to see how things are working. But in the mental health system, we've waited until people are really quite sick. And then you make an appointment with a therapist and your insurance might say you can see them a handful of times. And then that's kind of been it. Now I think the door is finally opening where we're like, you know, maybe it's good to check in with a therapist regularly, even when you're doing well. Or if you check in with somebody on and off throughout your life, you don't have to wait until you're so depressed you can't get out of bed or until your anxiety is so bad that you can't work anymore. Makes more sense to use it as preventative medicine too. 100%. It, it, it should be used as preventative, um, a preventative medicine too, because just like you said, trying to just like, man, I'm good. I don't need to do this. Like, no, you got to manage this constantly. It's a constant management and balancing act usually. Um, and that, that's the reason why I had to go back to the second time because I didn't get that. Like, and, I, and now that's why I said to do with having the routine, eating right, working out, uh, going on walks, doing things that you know actually feed into you um, on a daily not just when you feel like it or everything's going up or everything's bad, like you do it over the same thing every day. Um, and having that routine has been like a really helpful thing and um, in managing myself too. And how has life gotten better for you? What sort of things have changed since you've gotten help? Well, I finally did. Um, I finally finished, you know, I wrote that book. I wrote that book, The Game Within the Game. And that took me three years to write it. And I was in such a bad emotional state. It took me forever to just get it done. And then um, I finished that course that, you know, that's, that's based off the book. And I got that college accredited, um, which was a feat in itself. So I was like, man, this is dope. I have PhDs look through my stuff. Like, and there's like, this is good. So, um, and then actually, I would say the biggest accomplishment is probably just being there for my kids. Yeah. Because there, there is such a, period of time where it's just like I couldn't be there for anybody like I couldn't even be there for myself so just being able to be a father and be a friend and be there for people again like I would say that's even bigger than you know anything else what do you think where would you be right now had you not gotten help if you had to say I wouldn't be here Mm. I wouldn't be here at all like here point blank I know for sure I wouldn't be here wow And I've heard you say that being a football player was like 
this socially acceptable way for you to get out your anger and aggression. But for people that don't play football, I suspect a lot of them have committed crimes, assaulted people, and they end up uh, in a lot of legal trouble because of their anger and aggression from unhealed childhood wounds. Yeah, that was one of the, that was one of actually a big reason why I wrote the book and started even talking about a lot of the traumas I went through. Because when I actually started getting more comfortable with just saying what happened to me when I was a kid, um, the first people that I spoke to about that were other football players. And the thing that I, I remember every time that I told them my story about being abused, I, uh, they would always tell me, yeah, the same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me. And I always made sure I always asked, like, how many times have you said this to anybody? And every single answer was like, this is the first time. So, and then I go and go on my healing journey and get myself fixed, well, fixed in a way, uh, managed. And I kept, I could always think, remember those guys, like, if I had to go through all of this pain to just get to a point of just like being able to be here, like, and I know you guys aren't even talking to anybody. Like, man, that's a lot of ticking time bombs I'm sitting here thinking, like, is just walking around. Because, dude, when you're living with that much pain and you're not talking to anybody about it, and then you can just hide behind this mask of being a super tough, big, strong dude who's, you know, can't be touched, you're invincible. You know, it's such a, it's such a unrealistic way to walk through life. Yeah, and, and I... And I think it happens so often that people don't know that the symptoms that they have are related to something awful that they went through decades ago. And so they're irritable, they're angry, they're upset, or even parents will come in and they really don't have patience with their kids. Or people say, I blew up at my boss at work and I, I don't know what's wrong with me. And a lot of times it's just because they're holding on to something and they've tried to suppress it so much and they've never dealt with it that eventually things bubble over. It definitely comes out in other ways, that's for sure. It, it's, it, it, that's the thing I had to realize about getting help is the more that I try to suppress this, the more that it came out in other areas. I'm drinking a lot. I'm smoking a lot. I'm eating a lot. Like I'll eat, I'll eat all my feelings away. Um, whatever, whatever the thing was, it, it always comes out in other ways. And that's the thing too, why, you know, I like to share my story because I know that if I can just help people understand that this is going to come out in another way, just go go to therapy, go to treatment center if you need to, go talk to someone and go get the help so it doesn't come out in a way that really sets you back forever. You know, just like you said, I know that a lot of people who have gone through the abuse that I've gone through, um, they usually go and hurt other people. They usually, there's a lot of people that are in jail, a lot of people commit crimes, a lot of people just hurt other people. And so football was a saving grace for me because I could go and hurt as many people as I wanted to and it was encouraged. Right. So, and and it, but and it was also a saving grace because I couldn't verbalize anything. So I could I could verbalize it with my fists, but I just couldn't do it with my words. And it took years to get that to the get to that point. And what was it like the stress of carrying around a secret if you really didn't tell anybody? Did you feel like you were different? Did you, a lot of times people talk about the shame that they carry around because nobody knows that this thing happened to them? Did you get relief just by talking about it in the first place? It was a process. At first, I was super scared. Um, I felt dirty. I felt little. I felt like gross about it. And I felt, and it's in that was like, this is my worst secret. This is like, this is the thing that I don't want. And I was going to take it to the grave. And then um, the thing that I realized about it is 
if I don't say anything to somebody about this, it's going to eat me alive because it's already eating me alive, not not verbalizing it. And then the more that I've talked about it, the easier it became until now. Now I can talk about anything that happened to me and it doesn't phase me at all. It doesn't make me worried or it has no power over me like it used to. Yeah, that's the thing. I think when we suppress something and we think then it doesn't have any power over us, but the more that we hide something, it's the opposite. It's the more power that that has because it takes up so much energy to try to keep something like that a secret. 100%. 100%. Did you get diagnosed with PTSD or depression or anxiety? Yeah. I've been diagnosed with all three. Okay. Which is fairly yeah. common for people that go through uh, childhood trauma. And and then it often comes out, like we said, in lots of different ways in relationships, through somebody's work. Um, and how they take care of themselves and and physical illnesses. People who tend to get more physical illnesses, often we talk about childhood stress and they're like, yeah, actually, I've been through a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. I used to have a tick. Um, I didn't notice it until after I did EMDR, um, and which was absolutely phenomenal, by the way. Um, absolutely phenomenal. But I, I didn't realize I, I used to have a tick because anytime I used to think about stuff that happened in childhood, I would just start ticking. But it looked more like, like, you know, when someone gets like a cold chill and they just kind of shake it off. Like, that's how it, that's how it like showed. So I, I just thought it was like a cold chill or something. But then once I did the EMDR, the tick went away. So I was, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't notice it. I know no one else noticed it. I didn't notice it until way after the fact. Did you know at the time, did you have any idea that it was related? No, no, not until because um, it became very clear, I think, maybe a week after that, because that I would always have this tick and I'd always do it. And it always just looked like, oh, it's just chilly outside. And but it's, in, you know, 100 degrees outside. So, right. um, yeah, it, no, it took me a while, probably, probably after the first week. Wow, isn't that fascinating? That link between the the body and the mind that so often we don't recognize, and those little ways that sometimes our unhealed emotional wounds come out in terms of our physical ailments or illnesses, or even something like a tick. Yeah, and I didn't even notice it for years. Wow. Didn't even notice it. So for somebody who's going to say, "Yeah, but I don't want to open." Pandora's box. I've kept it hidden for all these years. And I'm afraid if I open that box, I might make things worse. Like I don't dare go there. What would you say to somebody? I would tell them you have to go there. You have to see who you really are before it's before you die. That's how I that's how I thought about it. Was I want to see myself in the mirror for the first time for what I actually am. For better or worse, I just want to see what it is. And yeah, it was a painful journey. And yeah, I did you do have a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. And that's okay. Because ultimately, you finding yourself, it really, now you give yourself that chance to actually be happy and content and peaceful in the world. But you got to go find yourself first and find out what really makes you happy, what really makes you like come alive in in the world. And sitting in yourself and sitting in your pain is like the first step in doing that. But it does get better. It hurts. It's just... It hurts a lot at first, and then after a while, it just starts going down and down and down and down and down. It's just like riding a bike, and it doesn't have the power like it used to. You just got to keep talking about it and keep dealing with it. Um, but yeah, 
there's, that's why I, I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm a big fan of the treatment centers. I'm a big fan of EMDR. I'm a big fan of just getting help. And um, yeah, so that's why I try to uh, say as often as I can. Another big concern I'll hear from people, and even after they start to come to therapy, is they're afraid of telling anybody what happened to them when they were a kid because maybe their parents perhaps should have known and didn't notice, or maybe it was a family member that abused them. They're like, I can't go back and and stir up all of these old wounds if I tell anybody now or people are going to question me. And they're really afraid about revealing it to anybody who knew them when they were a kid for one reason or another. What was your experience with that? Did you do people now who knew you as a kid? Obviously, you've made your story public, so people must be aware that this happened to you, uh, even though they weren't aware of it at the time. Yeah, um, I've, it's actually been it wasn't what I thought it was going to be at all. I thought that when I share my story, everyone's going to look at me like I'm gross or I'm, I'm an other, or, you know, like I thought they're just going to look at me like I'm filthy, like I'm just a filthy animal or something, but it was quite the opposite. People were very supportive. Um, It actually helped me too, because I had people reaching out from like the middle East and like Canada and, um, all across the world, you know, basically disclosing to me that the same things happened to them. And, you know, um, I was able to like help them with my story. So that's like a great thing to know that you like people have welcomed me. It has not been what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, there's certain people, too, um, that might look at you differently or treat you differently. Um, but for the most part, I would say that people have just been more supportive. And has that been the case, not just with strangers who've heard your story, but with friends and family too? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because that was the thing is too, like I told you with the football, um, it, it helped me actually form tighter bonds with people because they've gone through a lot of the same things that I've gone through and they know that they can talk to me about it and it's going to, and they know I'm going to actually know how it feels to walk around with this stuff on you. Like I get it. And um, we all want to be heard and listened to and have people to understand us and understand the pain that we've been sitting in. So, yeah, I try to just do that as often as I can. And a lot of people will tell me, well, talking about it isn't going to change it. So why do I have to talk about it? What would you say to somebody who says that? It will change it. The, The power that it has over you will dissipate the more and more you talk about it. You all, like, dude, I had a tick. It, it was, it would, it would, it would, it would bother me so much. I had a tick and then I finally started talking about it and now I don't have a tick anymore. Now I can just talk about it. And this was something that I was going to take to my grave. I would, no one was going to know this about me. No one's going to know I got sexually abused. That I got abused that period that I was traumatized. No one was going to know that I was going to, I was going to keep my, my strong man, you know, look on mask the whole, the whole rest of my life. And um, when I started talking about it, that power started releasing. And then now I'm fully myself all the time. And that's something that I never thought I would be able to do. Plus, when it comes to being happy, now I know that I can actually find happiness within my own self without even trying to do anything outside of me. I can find it right here. And I did not have that before because the only thing that was in here was trauma and pain and regret and remorse and just all that, all this negativity. 
And you have a fairly tangible example. Yeah, a tick went away. Most people won't ever have that to be able to say, actually, here's the change I saw. People say, oh, I feel differently, but you can't really see it. You have something that the rest of the world could see a before and after. The before I started talking about trauma and after, obviously, uh, your proof that talking about it, it won't change the past, but it can certainly change how you respond to that traumatic event that happened to you. Yeah, and it could change your future too. Yes. Because if I, I couldn't imagine, I, I don't imagine, I can't even imagine where I would be if I never said anything about this. But also too, the amount of people that I've been able to relate to and help um, because I've opened up my story and being able to like form that bridge of understanding between me and someone else that is a complete stranger, but they know that same pain that I know. And it, it, it gives me like, I have more fulfilling relationships because of that. It's not surface level. It's all deep. It's the stuff that I wanted, like that connection that I've wanted. I can finally have that now. Yeah, because I would imagine before all of your energy went into sort of just defending yourself from getting hurt again or from allowing anybody to get too close or from knowing your story. And now it's kind of the opposite. You're welcoming people to you. You're sharing stuff that you buried deep down, but suddenly you, it's like you, you can play offense in life, not just defense against making things worse, but you can actually say, what do I want to do to make my life better? Right. And you can actually be on the front lines getting that done yourself, doing it yourself. I couldn't do that before. I couldn't, I didn't even know what I wanted or why I wanted it or who I was or what I wasn't. And when you're trying to form a connection with another individual, you got to know those things. And I couldn't form those connections like I wanted to until I started dealing with my stuff. Um, and it was, it, and like you said, it, like we said, it is a painful process, but it is something that you can do. I've done it. Thousands of other people have done it. I'm not the only one. There's lots of people that have done this. It is very possible. It is very painful at first, but it does lessen that power. Oh, it is power over time. The more and more you do it, it's not like you go in there your first day and it's going to have the same effect if your last day. Talking about this stuff, no, it it definitely releases this grasp after a while. So I would highly encourage people to go talk to someone. And as part of your treatment, did they teach you coping strategies, how to deal with those uncomfortable emotions too? Oh, yes, they did. Because I had no coping strategies up until that point. I had none. I would, plus two, being an athlete, you don't have any time. So it was, and then the name of the game is the more that I can put into this sport, the better it is for me. So even when I'm not there, I'm still like watching film. I'm working on my body. I'm working on getting healthy. I'm doing all these necessary things to put as much into this one opportunity that I have as possible. So when it comes to, when it came to like, when I retired and left the game, I realized I didn't have any positive coping mechanisms. Like my, my thing was I would, go home after the game, I'd, I'd drink or I'd smoke. And then um, like, or I'd sleep all day or I'd play the video games. Like, but that was it. I, I didn't have anything that I would do. Now it's like, I'm a big walker. I walk all the time. I walk, if I can walk anywhere, like I will just walk there. Big walker, I meditate, I do yoga. I don't do yoga as often as I should, but I still do it every now and then. Um, but the meditating, the walks, the like, positive affirmations, um, journaling, um, and yeah, I, 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 and like actually doing the things that I like to do, like reading. 
I love reading. I love sitting down and just doing things that I know feed into me. Um, yeah, I had to learn that in the treatment center, though. Good, because I think a lot of people will say, well, if I just walk in there and share my whole story, well, then what's the point? But hopefully a good treatment center, a good therapist will help you figure out how do you take care of those emotions in a healthy way? How do you recognize when your anger is going up so that you can catch it before you explode? How do you figure out what skills and strategies are going to work so when you're sad, you can take care of those sad feelings without becoming self-destructive? Oh, yeah, because I'm definitely 100%, even after the two treatment center studies have had, like, you know, definitely bouts of depression because, you know, stuff happens in it and it sucks. And some things hit you harder than others. And, you know, I've, but now I can actually dig myself out of it. Before I couldn't dig myself out of it. I would just mull on it and just dwell and dwell and dwell and dwell and dwell until I was like about to pop. Now I know, okay, one foot in front of the other, what, go brush your teeth, get out of bed, go for this walk. Now go get something to eat. Like I know the, the steps that I can take if I ever get to that spot. And I wouldn't have learned that if I didn't go to a treatment center. So one last question for you. For somebody that says, yeah, but my life's really busy. It's hectic. It's chaotic. I have responsibilities. I don't have time to uh, start talking about this stuff or to open that box and, and finally let it out. What would you say to that person? You can find time. You find time to do every, everything else. <laughs> go to the gym, read this, sleep more hours than you can. Like You, you have the time. And it's, it's just the fact that you know that you going through that pain is going to be a, a hard, hard experience. But that hard experience will show you to you, it will make you you, and it will make you be able to live a much more fuller and rich life than you ever could before. And you just got to sit in that pain for a while. And you sit in that pain, you'll get there. And just watch and see like how your life will change because of that. Um, better relationships, better relationship with yourself, better life. You're living a better life. You know exactly what you want. You're walking in purpose every single step of the way now because you've already sorted out all the crap. You know exactly who you are. You know exactly what you're not. You know exactly the type of relationships you want um, and what you want to go towards in life. And that's a beautiful thing that therapy can really help you understand about yourself. Well, Reggie Walker, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us on the Very Well Mind podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Reggie's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Reggie's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, pay attention to any risky behaviors that you might have. Reggie said he noticed that he had some risky behaviors, like drinking and smoking. And he thought those things would help him cope, but he realized they were doing more harm than good. His experience with risky behavior, though, was fairly common. There are a few different explanations or theories about why childhood abuse can sometimes lead to risky behavior. One is that people who go through scary things actually become scared of nothing after a while, so they become somewhat reckless. There's also the idea that childhood trauma impacts brain development in a way that causes people to perceive risks differently. Another theory is that people who have experienced trauma during childhood might feel numb and risky behaviors actually help them feel more alive. But if you're doing risky things, like abusing substances, having unprotected sex with multiple partners, or even engaging in extreme sports, it could be a sign of several different things, like untreated mental health problems, but it also might be a sign that you haven't yet healed from childhood trauma. 
Obviously, if you engage in risky behavior, you're gaining something from it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Doing risky things doesn't make you a bad person, but it might be important to get professional help to assist you in finding healthier ways to get your needs met. Number two, talk to someone. Sometimes we think that shoving something down and never talking about it means that it doesn't have any power over us. But the more we try to pretend something didn't happen, the more effort we have to put into keeping it a secret. And it actually begins to take over our lives in some unexpected ways. That's why it's important to talk to someone. In Reggie's case, he first talked to the pastor at his church. From there, he started therapy and then went to an inpatient facility. He says telling his story has kept what happened to him from controlling his life. Talking to someone is tough, and telling your story takes a lot of courage. But finding someone to talk to might be the key to helping you heal. And number three, keep working on your mental health. I like that Reggie said he's a work in progress and that he's continuing to work on his mental health. Quite often, people think that they're either mentally healthy or not. But the truth is, mental health is a continuum. And where we fall on that continuum shifts from day to day or even moment to moment. There's some things that you can't control about your mental health, like your biology or some of the things that have happened to you. But there are other things that you can keep working on. And I like that Reggie shared some pretty simple things that he does to manage his mental health. Like he says, establishing a routine for himself and doing yoga makes a big difference in his overall well-being. So it's important to monitor yourself sometimes and ask what you're doing to manage your mental health. Reading a book for a few minutes every day, going for a walk, calling a friend, or just doing something that you love are examples of things that might improve your mental health. Think of those things like an investment. And the more you do those things, the better you'll feel and the less you'll be affected by those inevitable bumps in the road that life's going to throw your way. So those are three of Reggie's strategies that I highly recommend. Pay attention to any risky behaviors, talk to someone, and keep working on your mental health. To hear more from Reggie, check out his TEDx talk. It's called A Reflection on Part of My Life. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.